from New York City. This is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and we're going to start here in 1951 with Phil Silvers and Rosemarie in Top Banana Words and Music by Mr. Johnny Mercer. Yeah, we're going to kick right in with the Broadway to illustrate something. Evie, you are one of the people listening who knows that my wife and I have performed this number in a certain public venue. Here it goes, a word a day. Did you ever hear of the Reader's Digest? Oh, sure. They got an article in there called A Word a Day. Mm-hmm. Learn those words, you're as smart as anybody else. That's fine, but you have to know the meaning of the words. I know the meaning of the words. You do? All right, wise guy. Here's the dictionary. Try me. All right. Assiduous. Assiduous. Them's the things that live on sea or on land. Amphibious. Amphibious? That means someone who can use either hand. To simulate. To simulate. Take a benzedrine and have a few yaks. Escutcheons. A department store like Saks. Appreciate. Appreciate. That's like last year what you lost on your car. Posterity. Posterity? What you're sitting on wherever you are. Caricature. Caricature. A caricature in China's a cab. To disappear. When the waiter brings the tab. A word a day. A word a day. Like resume. Like resume. But you see, you could learn a word a day for decades. And you'd be watching four-year-olds out-talk you in their sleep because language is partly about words. But as I always say, it's really about grammar. It's how you put the words together. And for today's show, I want to zero in on a little bitty bit of grammar, a little bit of stuff that I've always enjoyed that for some reason nobody ever seems to talk about to show you how English is interesting, not only in its words, as Phil Silver says, but also in how we put them together. And by the end of this episode, you will also have grasped a concept that you can take a class or two or three of linguistics and still not understand, partly because it's one of those concepts with a really crappy term attached to it. What we're going to do is we're going to start with an example of this little bitty bit of grammar, and we're going to come down to it through this little bit of the screwball comedy, The Awful Truth. You know, a lot of those screwball comedies are said to be so funny, but, you know, time is passing, and I'm going to say something heretical, which is that, you know, bringing up baby, it's funny, but it's not that funny. This one, though, I highly recommend. It's so funny, you don't have to adjust, you don't have to put on your old movie glasses. It's Irene Dunn and Cary Grant. Still, belly laugh funny. And listen to the floozy character, if I may. This is Joyce Compton singing this intentionally bad little song. Here she goes. Just a bit of it. I used to dream about a cottage small, a cottage small by a waterfall. But I wound up with no home at all. My dreams are gone. And if we could slow it down to the bit that I'm actually referring to, this is going to seem strange, but here it is. I used to dream. Mike, please again. It's used to. Think about used to. Now, you know how it's written, and so it's used to. But what does use mean? And now think about what used to means. How did it get that way? What is that little bit of stuff? Why do we say he used to be my friend? Or I'm used to apricots and not peaches or something like that. What? What is that used? It's an interesting little bit. 
and nobody ever talks about it. And I'm going to because there's just certain things that you've got to get off your chest. And so used to, you could start with the etymology of the word use, but frankly, it isn't very interesting. It comes in in Middle English and it came from French and French got it from Latin. There was a word uti and uti meant utilize. And well, there you go. That's where etymology doesn't really do much for you. For whatever it's worth, it replaced this foreign word use. It replaced brook. So nowadays, this usage of brook is marginalized. We say, I'll brook, no complaint. But that word brook at first meant basically use. And then this Frenchy word use comes in and pushes brook off to the side. But the etymology of use only takes us so far because we're talking about saying, I used to dream of a cottage or I used to dream of a waterfall. Use? What are you using? Doesn't seem to quite makes sense. It's not about utilizing something. It's about something you did before. And more specifically, used to, in modern English, is a past habitual marker. And what I mean by that is that it marks something that was habitual, that was regular, and it's also in the past. And so that contrasts with just a simple past progressive. So English has two things. You have, I was walking, And then I used to walk. I was walking refers to something you were doing at one point, as opposed to I used to walk, which refers to you doing it on some kind of regular basis. And so, for example, here is a song lyric that is not habitual to show you that you can be in the past without being habitual. You can just be past referring to one thing. This is Chicago, not the musical, but the band. And this is their magnificent song. Something happens to pop music straddling around 1970. Some of the most wonderful music ever written on the pop scene. This is Does Anybody Really Know What Time It Is? Which is a truly wonderful piece of composition and production. Listen to the first lyric. As I was walking down the street Chicago at this point. Listen to those horns. Think of the poetry of that lyric. I was walking down the street one day and then, God, what happened to Chicago? Once you get into the 80s, all of a sudden it's this unlistenable music. I have this double CD set of Chicago and the first CD is a joy forever. The second CD, frankly, it's even I couldn't get through it. And as you all know, I listen through just about everything. Truly tragic downfall. But anyway, great at the time. And that's I was walking, not I walked down the street on a regular basis, not I used to walk down the street. And so English encodes the past habitual by utilizing some verb, in this case, use. And the reason for that is that English is a Germanic language, and Germanic languages like German and English and Yiddish and Swedish and Norwegian and Icelandic and the gang, they always have been a little bit shaved down 
in terms of how Proto-Indo-European, the big granddaddy language, worked. Proto-Indo-European was jangling with endings for just all sorts of things. You had your past, you had your present, you had your future, you had middle voice and all these things. I mean, Proto-Indo-European had a set of endings for going to the bathroom. It was amazing. Then you get down to Proto-Germanic, which is the granddaddy of German and English in the gang. All of a sudden, for reasons that aren't known, there's a lot less of that sort of thing. And so a language like English, instead of having endings for things of that kind, ends up taking little words and fashioning them into encoding those meanings. And so basically it's as if Germanic languages are fixing a kind of hole by coming up with things like used to. And of course, we do have to stop by the Beatles, if I put it that way. I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in And stops my mind from wandering where it will go So sad, isn't it? There's something about the Beatles of that time. In any case, fixing a hole. Now, still, where does this usage come from? Used to, use. Originally, the idea was that you could use use to mean that you do something often. And so you are used to doing something meant that you use something, that you do it on a regular basis. If you use something, usually it's not going to be just once. It's something that you use, that you do, that you perform on a regular basis. And so use ended up taking on this second meaning of doing something regularly. And it used to be that you could use it in the present. So today we say, I used to be. But in earlier English, and not even all that earlier, you can hear it used in the present. So for example, in one episode of this I did in about 1971, I talked about Tom Jones, and I talked about the novel, and I talked about how I was not going to ever read the novel, but I was going to watch the new Criterion pressing of it. Well, I did watch it, and the film actually uses a lot of dialogue from the novel, and that means that you get things such as is used to, meaning not I used to in the past, but somebody right now is used to doing something, meaning they do it regularly. So listen to this from the Tom Jones film where you hear is used. Another place that you often can find is used is in Hobbes the Leviathan. There's one that I'm sure all of us take to the beach, but it's one that's fairly commonly read where you can find is used. Here it is in Tom Jones. Confess honestly. Are you used, Mr. Jones, to make these sudden conquests? I am used, madam, to submit. If you take my heart by surprise, the rest of my body has the right to follow. I hope you won't follow me. I protest. I shall not know what to say if you do. Or, 1670, in Milton, you get used in the present. And so, in his History of England... The English then using to let grow on their upper lip, large mustachios. In other words, that they had that custom. And so you could use it in the present, just like black English does to this day. So if somebody says she be walking down the street, that doesn't mean she does it now. 
If somebody looks at someone walking down the street and says, oh, look, she be walking down the street, they are probably not black or whoever it is. They don't really control the dialect. It would be she walking down the street. B means that I stand there and see her walking down the street going to work every Tuesday or something like that. So you can have present habitual too. And that's how used was used in standard English as well. But then you could also use it in the past. And so 1550, Thomas Casbird has used to set his card in the street, meaning that he has been in the custom of doing it. And after a while, this new usage of use ends up balkanized to the past and you don't use it in the present anymore. And next thing you know, you have this specific, dedicated, past habitual marker. This is that thing called grammaticalization that I mentioned now and then, where you have something that starts as an ordinary free word and it gets grabbed to become part of this churn that creates our little words that are hard to define. In other words, our grammar. And what happens very often when something grammaticalizes is that it starts getting shaven down phonetically. And so just like Oliver Hardy says in the very first talking short that he did with Laurel, unaccustomed as we are, as it's called. He's talking about the kind of dinner they're going to have. And he says, and we're going to have dessert with the strawberries all mashed in. Well, with grammaticalization, often the sounds get all shaved down. And so you have instead of used to, well, to is the folk version of it is to say it's a hard sound. We linguists say that it's voiceless. Use, that z is voiced. You might want to call it soft, but you don't have the soft and the hard next to each other. And so instead of saying use to, you say used to. But that means that pretty soon you've got used to or used to. And therefore, there's really this new word. It's not use. We have to think about the fact that when we say used to, that it's use. And we only know that because of writing. That isn't something that you would think of when you were three or four or five years old. Really, there's this whole other word, use, and it's this past habitual marker. And then maybe it's two, or you can really think of there being a word, usta, which would be spelled Y-U-S-T-A, usta, and that's our past habitual marker. It came from use, just like a sparrow came from some dinosaur, but you know, it gets to the point where you have different labels for things and you have to let the past be the past. And so we have this word, I prefer to think of it as use. Now, at first, you have to have this be verb that you use with him. So he is used to make blah, 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 blah. Or he was used to play the clarinet on Sundays or something like that. Then that drops out when we're talking about this habitual marker so that now you don't say he was used to play the clarinet. You say he used to play the clarinet. But there is still a way where you can use that be verb with it. And that is how we use it in the present. And it has a different meaning. And so that is, I am used to something. And so I am used to having a garage. I am used to eating jambalaya soup with a lot of salt. I am used to that. And so that's a whole different fate of this verb use. And you know, it's very peculiar. You know, what does it have to do with using? And this gives me an opportunity. I want to share something with you. This is a song by De Silva, Brown and Henderson from 1929. 
it was introduced by Al Jolson and it's in a film called Say It With Songs and Say It With Songs is a lousy film and that's a lot to say when you're talking about the films of Al Jolson. In this one, Al Jolson goes to jail and it just goes on and on and on but at one point in the plot such as it is, he sings this song. And you know what? This is literally one of the two or three worst songs I have ever heard in my entire life. So you want to hear it? Here it goes. This is Al Jolson in 1929 singing the song Used to You. Now that I'm used to you, I'd be so blue. If we should ever part, I've grown so used to you. The things you do, they're part of me, sweetheart. You love my way, you kiss my way. Why should you try someone new? If you should say we're through, what would I do? What kind of love song is that? But that is it. And so I am used to you and therefore I'm going to stick with you. That was one of the love songs in Say It With Songs. Past habitual or marking the habitual. It's a weird concept in English because very often in English, in the present, the habitual is just marked with blankness. And so, for example, you might see it put as, well, present, past, future. And so present, build, and then past, built, and then future, will build. That is a hopelessly oversimplified and frankly even distorted view of the way English works because build is not really present. So for example, imagine if somebody, you know, stacking up bricks and they're building a house and you ask the person, so Sam, what are you doing? If Sam says, I build a house. Sam's got a problem. That is not a sentence. There is no real sentence, I build a house. He has to say, I am building a house. I build a house is only a sentence if it's going to be something like, what do you do when there's an earthquake every year? What do you do after these earthquakes? And you might say, well, after these earthquakes, I build a house. It would be on a habitual basis. And so we do do the habitual in English, but we do it with nothing. And so we don't think of it as marking. But, you know, languages have a way of filling that hole with something other than nothing. And you see it in non-standard Englishes. And so, for example, in Cornwall in England, down in the southwest corner, that part that looks kind of like an elf's little booty, that part is Cornwall. And they used to have a kind of English that was fascinatingly different from anything we think of as standard English now. And one of the ways that it was different was that it actually liked to mark the habitual in overt ways. And so, for example, if you were talking about somebody who smoked regularly, then you might say, ah, oh, do belong to smoking. So, ah, do belong to smoking. Ah, is he. And then do is is do. Ah, do belong to smoking. Belong to meant that he did it on a habitual basis. Or somebody who was speaking the old Cornwall English would have said something like, ah, dead him diggy. Yes, that was a sentence. Dead him diggy. Now, what it meant was, did he dig? 
but it didn't mean did he dig once. You hear somebody say, ah, dead him diggy. And you think that, well, there's something cute about it, that maybe it's about a child digging. And so it's called diggying. Or because this is a quaint dialect, you say diggy instead of dig for no reason. But no, it actually made more sense than that. The E ending was habitual. And so dead him diggy meant did he dig on a regular basis? Was he a digger? So that was in Cornwall English. Now, those things, of course, seem, quote unquote, quaint, like somebody smoking a pipe or something like that. Whereas in standard English, those things are done in perhaps less interesting ways. And we think of that as the proper thing. The way we're encouraged to think of English in this general area is almost unfair because past marking in general is more complicated in English than we're generally presented with. If you look at English the way it really is, as opposed to the way it tends to be presented to us, which always has a smell of Latin and ancient Greek. Really, English as it is, is more interesting than the way we tend to see it, which is in a very, very tight corset and about an inch of makeup. And so, for example, pass marking. First, there's the ED. Sure, that's fine. So walk, walked, you know who cares but then also we have a past marker for the habitual and it's this word use which came from use but it has nothing to do with it now it's use that's a whole new word and so if you're marking the habitual in the past then you don't use ed you have this use this used to business okay and then the past habitual is not only indicated with used to, but there's another way, which is with would. We tend not to think of it that way, but think about it that way. And so, for example, he'd come to me all the time and tell me that I needed to wear different shoes, or he would paint the wall purple every time I turned my back. Well, that would indicate something someone was doing in the past on a habitual basis, and it actually makes a kind of sense. Would starts as the past of want. Now we think of the past of want as wanted. That's regular. But as you might imagine, there used to be an irregular form, especially for a highly used verb like want, and it was would. And that's clear in some now marginal uses of would, where if you think about it, it's not just antique. It's not just weird. It's just that it's the past tense of want. So, for example, there's a novel about Diderot written by John Morley in 1878. You can tell I just dragged this off of a shelf for the example. But one passage in it was, as I saw that it was useless to have pity on my man, for the sonata on the violin had bathed him in perspiration. I resolved to let him do as he would. Now, let him do as he would. Well, it's not would as in as opposed to something else it's not conditional what that means is wanted so i resolved to let him do as he wanted but because the past of want is actually would especially in the old days you say let him do as he would that means that we have another past habitual marker which is would which we're taught is just conditional but no there's more to it than that sit down and talk with would and you find that 
Wood is actually a very interesting person that the analogy is off. But we are going to take a little listen right now to a song from A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. A Tree Grows in Brooklyn is a wonderful book, still holds up every word right now. Of course, it was made after World War II into a movie. The movie is excellent, too, if you don't mind basically half of the book being cut. Of course, in 1951, they tried to make it into a Broadway musical. Didn't quite work because they bulked up the role of Sissy to accommodate Shirley Booth, who people of a certain age will remember as Hazel the Maid. In any case, the score is fantastic. I'd take it over Carousel any day. Whoops, did I say that? But I'm not going to take it back. This is Shirley Booth, Hazel Maid, singing He Had Refinement and using the past habitual, which I'm sure Dorothy Fields, the lyricist, was thinking about when she wrote this song with Arthur Schwartz for A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. He was shy and awful modest Cause he was so high-bred When the wind blew up my bloomers Would his face get red? He undressed with all the lights off Until we was wet He had refinement He would walk next to the gutter so I shouldn't get hit With a pillar he'd kill mosquitoes So I shouldn't get bit Only certain kinds exertion for me He'd commit He had refinement And then finally, for the conditional, there is a past marker and it's the word of in English as we actually speak it. Now, could have, would have, that's the way it is in writing, and you can say those things, but as often as not, we say would have and could have, and quite commonly the unlettered person, such as the child or even sometimes an older unlettered person, thinks of it as of, and that's because really it is. If a Martian described spoken English and no one had ever written it down, then they would transcribe would of and could of. And so, There is a different kind of Chicago, the Chicago musical that gets this across perfectly in He Had It Coming. Listen to this lyric, and they're musically directed to be so crisp in their enunciation that they don't even pretend to say have. Listen to our of past conditional marker here. So, English has all sorts of ways of indicating pastness. You know, ordinarily, ED, but if you're in the habitual, then you've got use, and if not use, then we have a usage of would, and then with the conditional, there's a different past marker. It's not ED, it's of. We speak a very complicated, very fascinating language, and it is nothing like Latin. You learn something. And very much through the back door, too. And that is, in languages, if you're talking about time and verbs and describing events, well, there's past and present and future. That's tense. But then there's something else. 
And it's a something else that we often get a taste of when we're learning the difference between the imperfect and the preterite in Spanish or the imparfait and the passé simple in French. So there's that idea of the students were studying from their books when the bell rang. So we're studying from their books. Something goes on for a long time when bang, the bell rang. There's this difference between whether something was drawn out as opposed to abrupt. That drawn out versus abrupt distinction is different from whether something is past, present, or future. Because you can talk about drawn out versus abrupt in the past, present, or the future. It's a whole different aspect of reality. And languages tend to care as much about that aspect of things as they do about tense. And there are many languages that frankly barely care about tense, but they do care about this other drawn out versus abrupt thing. And there are all sorts of variations within it. And so, for example, you're frying some eggs, you're frying up some eggs. If you talk about frying them up, then you're calling attention to the completion of the frying. That's kind of like this abruptness. Or, for example, the difference between crack, which is like, and crackle, which is, so it's like a bunch of little cracks, like crackety, 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 or like a drip, as opposed to a dribble. I'm not going to try to make that sound. Or a sniff, and then a sniffle, which is smaller, and there's probably more than one. It's like, so is Peppa Pig and her family. I'm Daddy Pig. You can tell how old my kids are. Sniffle is, you know, that's all of our lives. That difference between crack and crackle, drib, dribble, sniff, sniffle. Do you ever think about that little ol? That's iterative. And so that ol means that something is taking on a kind of a kind of quality, iterative. Is it ongoing or is it abrupt? And if it is ongoing, does it have that kind of quality? That's iterative. Habitual is another aspect of this ongoing or is it abrupt business. Past, present, and future are easy to remember, and it's the way we're taught English, not to mention Latin and everything else. And so we think of tense as central. But really, the business of is it ongoing or is it abrupt is something else. And that's called, get ready for it, or, well, frankly, you're not going to like it even if you get ready for it. It's called aspect. Tense, well, we know what tense is, and so we don't worry. But aspect, aspect of what? And so even if I tell you about this, it's going to be easy to forget it because I gave you a name for it that makes about as much sense as calling it watercolor or already. So instead of calling it aspect, let's call it drawn out or finished up. And let's have an acronym. And so drawn out or finished up, D-O-F-U. And so DOFU. So is it tense or is it DOFU? And there's something that I guess makes it easier to remember than aspect. Dofu is actually Mandarin for tofu. So basically, is it tense or is it bean curd? Bean curd is something that languages, well, well, no, dofu is something that languages care about probably more than they care about tense. Past habitual is part of what's called aspect. And now you know what dofu is. And yes, some of you are thinking that now I'm going to play something from Aspects of Love, one of the musicals produced by Mr. Andrew Lloyd Webber. But you know what? <coughs> no. And so how about Aspects of Al Jolson? How about Al Jolson whistling? Namely, this is the rest of the used to you recording, which is almost redeemed by the fact that Jolson really was quite the talented whistler. So here we go again. Thank you. 
You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com to listen to past shows and subscribe. Or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. God, what did happen to Chicago? That second CD is truly an embarrassment. This show used to be edited by Mike Volo, and it still is. And I am used to be John McWhorter. Thank you.